Hey, good morning. How are you guys today? Happy Father's Day, everybody. So if you're new to us, if you're just visiting today, my name's Alan. And happy Father's Day, and we're glad that you guys are here. You've caught us in the second week of a brand new sermon series called The Truth About Lies. And the truth about this series is it's an ambitious undertaking to try to get to the truth about lies. And so what we've done last week, and this week we're going to try to do the same, is kind of take an overview. We're trying to get the stage right. Last week we took sort of a 30,000 foot view. This week we're going to try to come in or something closer to 10 and try to see a little bit more detail on the topic. But the whole effort in these first two weeks is to set up the context and give you some idea because next week and following we're going to be trying to look at different lies that we believe specifically lies that Christians are tempted to believe and often do believe. And then we're going to try to tell the truth about those lies. So if you didn't get a chance to be here last week as we were talking about this, I hope you'll go back and take a look at it because it'll help make more sense of what we're going to talk about today. So last week, the lesson was called the father of lies. And we looked at what Jesus had to say about the devil and about lies, and we were looking in John 8. We talked about a lot of good stuff there last week, right? Well, one of the things we talked about is that something we knew, we're in a spiritual war. What we might not have seen so clearly before is the nature of this spiritual war is a battle between believing truth or believing lies. And so we looked at the devil's strategy. We looked at some of how this all works together. And this week, what we're going to be talking about is the war on truth. You, have you ever noticed how, remember, there's a war in one part of the world that sometimes spins out and creates wars in other parts? Right now in America, and I think actually it's probably global, there's a cultural war going on. We're dealing with a war on truth. How many of you guys remember the first time you heard the phrase, my truth? How did that strike you? Was anybody else besides me going, your truth, my truth? Are we going to lose the truth? Are we giving up on the truth? Have we, have we just set that aside? I thought this is so bizarre to hear someone talk about their truth. Well, what about fake news? The first time you heard that. Or alternative facts. Aren't these oxymorons? I mean, if it's fake, it's not news. And what was it John Adams said that facts are stubborn things? Well, we've got alternative facts, then maybe they're not quite so stubborn anymore. So our American lexicon has been expanded to also include phrases like fake science, fake history, fake Americans, Russian trolls, fake followers and fake likes on social media generated by computerized bots. A lot of fake stuff floating around these days, would you agree? And we're swimming in the middle of it. Not too long ago, there was a term, truth decay, that was coined by the Rand Corporation. You want to go ahead and throw this slide up? What they were doing is they were attempting... Let me see, I wrote it down here. They were attempting to, uh, to describe what they call the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. 
So in this slide, I don't know if you can read it well or not, but these are the trends that the Rand Corporation has said characterized truth decay. See if any of this resonates with you. Increasing disagreement about facts and analytical interpretation of facts and data. Anybody see that one happening? You, if you, if you didn't, you must not be watching any news sources at all. <laughs> because I, I flip back and forth sometimes between Fox and CNN and MSNBC and, you know, One America and a few others. Because there's, well, it's like this, a blurring of the line between opinion and fact. That's the second one on there. And I've noticed in so many sectors, there's that, blur, that blurring of that line. The increasing relative volume and resulting influence of opinion and personal experience over fact. Declining trust in formerly respected sources of fact. The Rand Corporation is not a church, not affiliated with a church, not Christian as far as I know in any way. This is not a Christian argument. This is someone from a different perspective talking about the world that we live in. Check out this one. This was a bestseller from 2018. The name of the book, that is a little hard to read, isn't it? The name of the book is The Death of Truth. The subtitle is Notes on Falsehood in the Age of Trump. Anybody heard of this one? It was a bestseller back in 2018. I am not recommending the book. I'm not discouraging the book. I'm neutral on the book. but And I haven't read the book myself. But all the reviewers agree that it's pretty much hopelessly biased. It's a, it's a political book. And it's written by a, a lady by the name of Machiko Kakutani. Uh, she, was, she worked at the New York Times. She's a very good author. And I, I'm bringing this up to you just to bring out this one quote that I thought was fascinating. In her book, she says, it's a question, how did truth and reason become such endangered species? And what does their impending demise pretend for our public discourse and the future of our politics and governance? Even though in her book she lays a lot of the blame at the feet of President Trump, she admits that it actually started way back in the 1960s with philosophers, French philosophers, when they began to inject the ideas of postmodernism into the United States. How many of you guys know what postmodernism is? Because I didn't. <laughs> I did. I, I've heard, Aaron, that does not surprise me that you know that. Aaron is a brilliant guy. If you haven't sat, had a chance to sit and talk with him, you're missing out. Guy is sharp. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you would understand postmodernism. Fact check me here, buddy. Tell me if I got this right. Postmodernism is not just after modernism. It's really, it's an idea. It's a philosophy. It's a philosophical approach to life that questions the concept of reality, questions the concept of truth, and even humanity. It basically denies the existence of absolute truth. And it questions all established norms of culture, sexuality, religion, science, philosophy, and society. In my research, it seems that it not only questions these things, but it seeks to undermine them through something they call deconstructionism. Aaron, did I come close? Basically, that's it. That's, that's good. Because I had heard this term since I was a kid. I mean, I, I was born in 1964, and it was about the same time that these philosophical ideas 
started being exported from France to us. And yet, you can see their impact on our society. How many of you guys are, are familiar with a guy named David Foster Wallace? Ever heard that name before? He's no longer alive. He's a, he's a famous American author. He wrote a book that was highly influential. It was published back in 1969. The name of it was Infinite Jest. Not a Christian, not even close. Made no pretenses to being a Christian. But there's a quote from him in this book called Conversations with David Foster Wallace. And see if this quote doesn't resonate with your experience, what you're seeing in the world around us. He says, what's been passed down from the postmodern heyday is sarcasm, cynicism, and a manic ennui. I had to look that up. Uh, that's a weariness or a dissatisfaction. You probably get manic, right? It's a manic weariness or dissatisfaction. A suspicion of all authority. Suspicion of all constraints on conduct and a terrible penchant for ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness instead of an ambition, not just to diagnose and ridicule, but to redeem. Uh, yeah, that's a long, difficult sentence. Basically what he's saying is, uh, we've got a terrible penchant for sarcastically fixing blame with no resolve to fix the problem. Right? And he says, you've got to understand that this stuff has permeated the culture. Now, he died several years ago. He died before Trump, I believe. He says, it's permeated the culture. It's become our language. We're so in it that we don't even see that it's one perspective, one of many possible ways of seeing. Postmodern ironies become our environment. The reason why I'm showing you all this is just to say this is not... Something that you're only hearing about. This war on truth is not something that we're just hearing about in churches. Even people who do not believe that there's a God, let alone that Jesus is king of a kingdom that's invading this earth, people who have no agreement with those statements at all are still saying, we're in the middle of a war. The attack is to eliminate truth, and they're attaching a lot of the blame to an idea. I'm sure that there are more culprits that we could point out, but at least this one idea, which is a deceitful idea, and that's postmodernism. Can you see the devil's strategy at play in our society today? Last week we talked about his, his, his strategy, right? And I told you it would be a good idea to, to memorize it. It's deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in our society. Postmodernism is, I believe, a deceitful idea. And it plays to disordered desires. The desire to say for myself what is truth. For me to tell you that my opinion outweighs your experience or education. Things like that. That's a disordered desire. And it has been normalized to a large degree already in our society. Is our society better or worse for it? We are totally divided. And there's a whole lot of problems that we're dealing with. The cultural war, this cultural war on truth, is the result of a spiritual war that's been raging since the garden. Since the Garden of Eden. We're swimming in it, guys. We're up to our ears in lies of every sort and from every side and every angle. 
We're being endlessly assaulted with ideas that do not conform to the reality and poison us to the extent that we're fooled into believing those lies are true. That's something we talked about again last week. Whenever we believe a lie, a deceitful idea gets planted into our mental maps, we poison ourselves and we get drug off track. Okay, so back to last week's lesson in one other way. I, I attached a handout on how to uncover Satan's lies and expose, expose Satan's lies and discover Jesus' truth. How many of you guys tried to work through that? Did you find it difficult? It's a very good worksheet. I didn't draw it up. I actually stole it from somebody else. But it's very good. It reminds me a little bit of that class search for significance that I did years ago. How many of you guys remember that class? A lot of the same kind of truths that we're talking about in this sermon series, we talked about in that class. But the difficult thing about filling out a worksheet like that is that it's really hard to spot lies. Sometimes they're easy to spot, right? But other times, frankly, they hide. I know for myself, I can't always see the lies that I've believed because I think that they're true. If I thought it was true, it wouldn't go on that worksheet, would it? And yet I may be finding myself running into reality because I'm wrong about what's true and what's not true. And I may be confused about that until I actually replace that lie with the truth till I find it. There's something that I learned as a cop a long time ago. And that is that the best lies are the ones with the most truth in them. You guys agree? So, if you really want to deceive someone, so it's going to sound like I'm trying to give you tips on how to be better liars. You can take it that way and call me a full-service pastor, working both sides of the aisle. That's not my intention, but I do want to raise your awareness. And probably, again, your common sense and experience will validate this for you. That really, if you really want to deceive someone, make a statement that's 98% true. But make sure that the 2% that off is the part that matters the most. Those are really good liars that can do that. Have you ever had someone do that to you? This is a common experience, right? But it's really hard to find the lie when there's only 2% off. It's just the 2% that matters. Or the next best lies are half-truths. Sometimes I think that we need to remind ourselves that a half-truth is still a lie. What you tell them is true, but it's not the whole truth. There's a reason why in our courts of law they make you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because when you leave out parts of it, you still lie. Or another way that you can really deceive someone is just to simply oversimplify something that's complex. Then you can spin it and color it the way that you want. That's still a lie too. You ever experienced that? It's hard to spot lies. But if you know what you're looking for, and then if you know where to look, you got a better shot. So from our last lesson, we looked at the devil's strategy. So we know what to look for, right? So... Maybe we can do something this week to take it a little deeper and to find where we can look for them. In order to do that, I want to go back to John 8 where we started this last week. And I guess it's my old cop nature, 
but I want to follow the clues. And I want to take you along on a journey here so that we can find out where these landmines, these deceitful ideas, might be being planted in our lives and in our society. So let's go back. We're not going to read the whole thing that we read last week. We're just going to take verses 44 and 45 just to get to this nugget. Jesus says, you are the children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. So now whenever you read that, there's something that might not make, the dots might not connect for you at first, especially if you read it quickly. Whenever Jesus tells these guys that their father is the devil, he's saying that they are the seed of the serpent, which goes back to the prophecy in Genesis 3. You familiar with that? Well, we need to go back because what Jesus is doing, Jesus is tying the devil's primary strategy to the story of Eve in the garden. And if we're going to follow the trail and figure out where he's going to come at us with these deceptive ideas, where he's going to try to deploy his strategy, I think we need to go back and look at Genesis 3 and and take a detective's eye with us to see if we can see his strategy at work there. Now, before we do it, before we get into Genesis 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. Is there anybody here who has a problem believing that there was a talking snake? I was watching a clip of Bill Maher interviewing a Christian. And I remember him trying to put this Christian down. And he was saying, come on, a talking snake, really a talking snake? I don't remember how the Christian answered it. I just remember the answer that was coming to my head. Really, a talking snake is your breaking point? <laughs> That's what stands out to you as hard to believe? For some people... This is a reason why they just want to dismiss the Bible altogether. And even amongst Christians, there's a lot of debates. We need to understand something about Genesis. It's ancient literature for which we have no modern equivalent. So it's bound to spark some debate. Some people think that the snake is a completely literal being. Kind of like, I don't know, uh, what was it, Jungle Book? The snake? To rest in me. Some some people think of it that way. Other people think that this is ancient Near Eastern imagery for spiritual evil. I want you to realize that those questions, that debate, is a debate over genre of literature, not about theology. Either position has to admit that this story is true. So make it literal, make it figurative. However you understand it, you need to understand the story is true. In fact, what happens in this story has resonated for millennia as the truest diagnosis of the human condition ever written. And I think it gives us the key to the devil's playbook. So you in? As we read this, look for the devil's strategy being deployed. I want to put that strategy up for you one more time on the screen just to remind ourselves. The devil's strategy is deceitful ideas, deceptive, deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires, God-ordered things in the creation story and made them perfect, made them good. 
our deceitful, deceitful ideas play to our desires for disorder. Our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So if you've got a pencil handy, circle anything you think hits this strategy. Here we go. Number, uh, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, may we eat, or we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Actually, guys, that shows just about how much attention Eve was paying to what God said, because he never said they couldn't touch it. We have our first legalist. Verse 4, he says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable, for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? As if he didn't know. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Classic guy. He says, the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. This is a classic double blame shift. It was her and it was you. It was not me. By the way, this is a pattern that you'll see a lot of times in marital conflict is the inability, in actually any relational conflict, the inability to take responsibility for what we do and to pass the blame and make it about somebody else. Starts all the way back here with, with Adam. So uh, where were we at? Verse 13. Then the Lord said, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it's this last verse that Jesus is reminding, he's alluding to whenever he tells the believers who wouldn't listen to him that their father is the devil. They're the offspring of the snake. Now, did you see the devil's strategy being deployed in this with Eve? Deceitful ideas? Appealing to or playing to disordered desires? I'm going to show you now what I think are the main targets that Satan used against Eve and still uses against us, has always and will always go after these. It'll give us that blueprint, that roadmap to where he's coming after you and where he's going to try to plant these deceitful ideas in your mental map. You ready? 
They're going to probably fall in the three greatest questions of life. The devil targets these three greatest questions of life. This is not a Christian list. This is not a list that Christians say are the most important questions of life. This is a universally agreed upon short list of questions, three questions. The first question is, who is God? Who is God? Adam and Eve knew who God was, right? But then Satan comes in and he wants to plant a deceitful idea. You'll find it in verse 5. He says, first of all, that God knows that you'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Translation, God isn't who he claims to be. He's holding out on you. Catch that? The second greatest question is, who am I? Who are we as humans? Who am I? Verse 5 again, the devil says your eyes will be opened. Translation, you are not what God has told you you are. What did God tell them? You're above the rest of the creation, but you're below me. You're created to image me, to reflect me, to rule in my name. And the devil is suggesting that you can't really trust God. He's holding out on you. And you're not what God has told you. You can be something more. And that comes into the third question. What is the good life? What is the good life? In verse 6, Eve is quoted as having seen that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. What Satan had planted in her was basically this. You can ignore what God said and you can still be happy or happier. You don't have to do what God says. So just to sum it up, who's God? Well, God isn't who he claims to be. He's actually holding out on you. He's not telling you the whole truth. Who am I? You're not what God has told you you are. You can be anything, do any dang thing you want. You can be in charge. What's the good life? You don't have to obey God to be happy. You can ignore what he said and be happy or happier. Let me ask you, do these deceitful ideas sound familiar to you? They sure do to me. And they're still the devil's go-to lies. The devil will switch up the specifics depending on the generation and the society, but his lies always run along these lines. He's going to come after these three great questions, and he's going to try to implant a deceitful idea into your mental map that plays to your disordered desires. And on a larger scale, he wants to make that normal in the society that you live in. Which of the three targets do you think the devil's top priority will be? Which one of those three questions? Why is this important? Well, if he's coming after me, I kind of know. I want to know what his first attempt's going to be at. And is he going to swing at me with this or swing at me with that? The first one that he's going to go after, I guarantee you, is going to be the first question, who is God? And I'll tell you why, because this is as deadly as it is brilliant. If he can distort your idea about who God is, you will automatically distort the answer to the other two. You will not even be able to know who you are if you don't know who God is. 
Put another way, put this in your notes, it works like this. What I believe about the good life is based on what I believe it means to be human, which is based on what I believe about God. We live in a secular society. Secularism, secularism, ha, secularism is an attempt to live as though there is no God. Now, whenever I was a kid, this was starting. This was starting to percolate and become more normal. But now it's here. We live in a society that attempts to act and live as though there is no God. And what secularism does, it's another one of those deceitful ideas, I think, along with postmodernism. They're very close. They're like ugly cousins. They go together everywhere. Secularism turns the first question into an accusation from who is God to who's God? There's no God. And it has absolutely redefined what it means to be human in our society. And it has redefined and seeks to still redefine what it means to be human and what the good life is all about. You guys see that going on? Okay, the reason why I'm going down this, this path is to say, listen, nothing has changed since Eden. The devil is still using the same bag of tricks. He's still got the same agenda. He uses the same strategy. And he's going to come at you and us, me, in these same areas. So the question becomes, how can I stop believing the lies? Has there ever been anybody who's ever been able to keep the devil from planting deceitful ideas in his mental map? The answer is yes. Jesus. Do you recall where we can read about that? It's in Luke 4. Luke 4, 1 through 13. If I'm going to stop believing the lies, then I need to see how Jesus did it. Make sense? So let's, let's read it and see what he says. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. I was reading this a few years back, and it was the first time that I realized that he didn't just get tempted three times while he was out in the desert over 40 days. He got tempted for 40 days. I can't often make it 40 minutes without caving. He was tempted for 40 days. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I want you to understand something. that, that If you read this in context, what happened right before Jesus goes out into the desert? First of all, he, he didn't just choose this fight. The Holy Spirit led him there. But what happened right before this? He's baptized by John, and a voice from heaven that everybody hears, hears God say, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. What does Satan hit him with first? If you are the son of God. How many of those big questions, or those three questions, is he trying to slip a deceitful idea in? At least the first two, right? God just said, this is my son. Are you really his son? Can you really trust God? You know, he will hold out on you. 
He won't tell you everything. Who are you again? Verse 4, look how Jesus handles the attempt to get this into his mental map. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. It's a quote from Deuteronomy. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. How many of the big three are being attacked and targeted with deceitful ideas in that statement? By the way, devil, uh, Jesus doesn't tell the devil that you can't do that. He doesn't argue with him that he could do this. Instead, what he does is he comes back and he says, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the Son of God. Now he's coming back at him with the same idea. He's still trying to plant the idea that he needs to question what he believes about who God is and who he believes he is himself. And you know what he's doing here? He's quoting Psalm 91. He did it in the first, if you are the Son of God, too. It's not just Jesus quoting, quoting the Bible back to the devil. The devil's coming at him trying to twist Scripture. That's a side note, but that I want you to know that happens. He says, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Another quote from Deuteronomy. When the Lord, when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Like Seth was saying, there are just too many things that we could talk about in this, and I can't do them all justice. Sorry about that, but that's what I think small groups are good at. They give you a chance to talk about this more in depth. But I want to point out at least two things that Jesus had that allowed him to defeat Satan. First of all, in the very first verse we read, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He didn't go out there alone. He was full of the Spirit. And in each temptation, he quoted truth. He didn't consider the devil's lies like Eve did. You want, a, you want a strategy for overcoming the devil's lies? Don't consider them. Don't try to debate with the devil. He will get you every time. How many of us have had that favorite sin, that one that we hate and we fall into over and over and over again, and we don't know why we do it. We think, maybe I'm just a slave to this. Maybe I'll never get past this addiction. Maybe I'll never quit lying or fill in the blank, whatever it is. And so we're trying to hold the line. We're trying to do well. And then we hear the tempting thought. And something like, well, it wouldn't be too bad, comes into our heads. Or maybe we'll do like Eve did and we'll just kind of twist the scripture that we know or misquote it or misapply it. Jesus didn't do any of that. He handled it differently than Eve did. He went straight to the Word of God and he quoted it. And he didn't twist it. He didn't try to make it say what he wanted it to say. So if I'm going to stop believing the lies, I need what Jesus had. I need the Spirit and truth. 
I need the Spirit and truth. What is the Spirit? Well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. One of the better definitions I've heard of the Holy Spirit is what I'm putting in your notes here. It is the presence and power of God. Presence and power of God. What is the truth? Truth is reality. It's what you run into when you're wrong. That was part of our definitions list last week, right? Truth is reality. Truth is also God's Word. That's what Jesus said in John 17, 17. We can know what reality is and what truth is by God's Word. So number one, the Spirit and truth will transform me into the image of Christ and set me free to live in harmony with all that's good in the world. We need both spirit and truth. And they'll set me free. They'll transform me into the image of Christ. It's important that we understand we need both. Spirit without truth is not life-changing. Remember, what's the Holy Spirit? It's the presence and power of God. Spirit without truth is not life-changing. Why? Well, think of it like this. Have you ever had a friend who just came and sat with you? They, they didn't say anything to you necessarily. Maybe it was a hard time. You were suffering a tragedy. It was comforting if they were there. But if there's no truth or meaning, then there's nothing particularly life-changing about it, right? Truth without spirit, on the other hand, is cold and sometimes cruel. Information alone doesn't lead to transformation. We need the presence and power of God. We need spirit and truth. Has anybody ever said, I was transformed by reading Wikipedia? Information alone doesn't transform us. We need more than information. I need the Spirit, the power and presence of God to lead me into the right truth at the right time. You with me? I need more than just information. I need the right truth at the right time. I need the Spirit, the presence of God, the power of God to lead me into the right truth at the right time. How does that happen? For me, and I think this is the normal Christian experience, I get this in small groups. Where do I find the presence of God? Where do I find the the, the Spirit? Do I find it simply alone in a scenic, beautiful vista where I see God's great artwork and I'm alone in His presence? Could be. I, I can't deny that that happens. I even feel like I've felt His presence in some places. But whenever Jesus says where two or three or more of you are gathered together, there I will be. Whenever I've been in the presence of other Christians who love Jesus and who have the Spirit, I've felt that, haven't you? And you know, it's really hard for me to give in to sin, even my favorite sins, my my habitual sins, whenever I'm around other Christians, whenever I'm talking with them. So I get it in my small groups. I get it in mentors. Pastors, sermons, retreats, Sunday mornings like this. The point is, I experience the presence of the Spirit, the presence and power of God, not 
whenever I'm alone so much as whenever I'm with others, other Christians and believers. That's an important thing. We just finished a series called Why Church? Well, I think this is a big reason why church. Because we aren't supposed to do this alone and we can't do it alone. The reality is, and that's point number two, isolation and lies will deform me into the image of Satan and and enslave me in a life of sin and death. Spirit and truth will transform me into the image of Christ. Isolation and lies will deform me into the image of the devil. The truth is we become like whoever we spend time with, for better or worse. And the devil's going to try to get me isolated from God's spirit and God's people and try instead to get me to connect with his people. It's not just the devil as though he's the only boogeyman that we encounter. You know, there's more on that side of the veil than just him. We know about, enough about the spiritual warfare to know that there are other entities, other intelligent evil in the world around us that we cannot see with the naked eye. But we can also tell if Jesus is telling these believers of his who will not listen to him that their father is the devil, the father of lies, then we know he doesn't just work through the unseen elements in our world. And he doesn't just work through people outside this building or outside this congregation. He'll work through anybody that will listen to him. And what he wants to do is he wants to isolate and he wants to infiltrate with his lies. Eve, at least at some point in this story, was isolated. And she became vulnerable to lies. Or maybe Adam was there the whole time. And just goes to show that outside the presence and power of God, it doesn't matter how many people you got around, you can still be schnookered. And I'll tell you this, I've learned about Satan over the years. He's not a sniper. He doesn't go after you to get you. He goes after you to get a whole string of people. He likes to work with landmines because he wounds a lot of people. And when he went after Eve, got her isolated and was able to use lies, he deformed her, and look what it did to the rest of us. We've been dealing with the fallout ever since. To live and thrive as a human, I need to be in the presence of God and living in his reality, which is called worship. Spirit and truth sound familiar to you? It should. You'll read about it in John chapter 4, 23. Jesus said this. He says, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. To stop believing the lies, I need to worship God in spirit and in truth. How do I do that? How do I worship in spirit and truth? I worship God in spirit and truth when I, number one, choose to spend more time in the presence of God's spirit and God's children. See, I choose whether or not I'm isolated. I choose whether or not I'm disconnected because I choose who I spend my time with. If I spend my time with romance novels, I mean, some of those are pretty awful, right? Right? Who am I going to start to be more like? 
Who am I, who am I putting myself around the most? Is that going to have an impact? I can choose, if I want to worship God in spirit and truth, I can choose to spend more time in the presence of God's spirit and God's people, God's children. Number two, I worship God in spirit and truth when I choose to fill my mind with truth. When I fill my mind with the devil's lies, I push out the truth. When I fill my mind with God's truth, I push out the lies. Several months ago, I was trying to illustrate the idea of having a pure heart, and I used milk and honey. Any of you guys remember that? It was a mess. What I did was I, I put a glass full of, well, mostly full of milk, and then I poured honey in. And the more honey I pushed into the glass, the more it pushed out the milk. Till eventually, in theory, I'd have a glass full of nothing but honey, which is what it means to have a pure heart. What I choose to fill my mind with will push out the other things that are in there. It's a volume thing. Not volume as in audible, but how much, quantity. What do you feel? Who's filling your mind the most? I saw a statistic, and it's not a lie. 74, what was it? Most Americans spend 74 hours a week watching TV. That's crazy. And whenever I read about how they're doing it, I realized I'm one of them. Because I have my TV on in the background, not always paying attention while I'm doing other things. That's a whole lot of influence that we're turning on. I am not against TVs. <laughs> I'm not against even having it on like I do. But you've got to realize that if I'm going to listen to Jake Tapper and CNN or Pick Your Poison, you know, uh, Sean Hannity on Fox News, if I'm going to let these guys constantly pour into me, if I'm going to let them fill up my mind with their thoughts, it's a good chance it's going to push out God's thoughts. It's a good chance that I'm going to have a problem with worship. Okay, I've given you quite a lot to think about, right? Hopefully in these first two lessons, you're getting a better idea of what spiritual warfare is. The truth about lies. How dangerous they are. How deceitful and seductive they are. And how they change not only us and deform us, they deform our society. And I hope that you realize that there is a way to fight this. And I've not told you anything new about that than what you've heard before. We, The Father wants us to worship in spirit and truth. We need to be in the presence of God. We need to pray more. We need to talk with Him and ask Him for provision and to help us in this battle. And that's how I'd like to end this lesson is with a prayer where I pray for exactly that. So if you would, bow with me and let's ask. Father, thank you for telling us the truth. Please give us your spirit and your grace to move us, to look for the deceitful ideas the devil uses to tempt us and to lure us into those dark places. Father, we've all got sins we keep doing, sins that we hate, sins that we we can't seem to figure out how to stop doing. Looking at the truth about lies at least explains some of why that's like that. There are deceptive ideas that have been planted in our mental maps and they keep 
taking us back to the same places again and again. Father, I'm asking that you please help us to abandon the foolish notion that we're ever going to be able to overcome those those sins through willpower and trying harder. It simply doesn't work. Willpower is like a muscle. It gets tired and it fails. Anytime that I've ever made changes through willpower, it never really lasted very long. I think we can all say that. And so we fail again and again, and we feel like we're failures. We feel like we're slaves to some sins. So, Father, we need you, and we're asking you, we're begging you, to change us from the inside out, to change how we think. Father, please reveal the deceitful ideas that keep leading us to sin and replace them with your truth. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Then we're going to find the freedom that Jesus promised when he said the truth will set you free. Father, we want your kingdom to come. and We want your will to be done right here on earth just like it is in heaven. Father, we want to be salt and light for you. We want to bring glory to your name and healing to our homes, our workplaces, our schools, and our communities to help bring heaven here and to draw others to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.